0: You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey folks, welcome back. This is the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Great to have you with us today. Remember this, the place for a man, for a woman, completing all their powers is in the spiritual fight and right now, today, making disciples of the nations. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, dear friends, we uh, have been having fun uh, with the Intimacy Series. We're on our third one right now. Uh, so in the past, we've talked about some really some wonderful, interesting things, and uh, just kind of want to remind you about the last time. If intimacy with God is something that we think ought to be paramount as far as a learning curve in our lives, one of the things we thought we best ought to do is look at the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, and find out what the intimate account of two people pursuing one another might teach us about our pursuit of God. In other words, We see what's going on in their lives. Should we therefore pursue God with the same intensity, if not much more intensity, we should pursue God that way? Should we romance God? Should we praise Him? Uh, Well, we sometimes feel lonely in that relationship, and on it goes. So we looked at the Song of Songs, trying to figure out, does that matter in our lives? Then we looked at the woman at the well. Remember, now it's the Samaritan woman at the well, or the woman at the Samaritan well. And one of the things we noticed is in the Bible, a foreigner at a well with a woman frequently means betrothal. (laughs) You can see it at least three times in the Old Testament and, of course, all throughout uh, Jewish history. But when we looked at that account, we saw that the Samaritan woman is every one of us. She's everyone who has sinned and betrayed God and chased after other gods. She's every one of us who's made a complete mess of our lives. She's every one of us with a sinful and a broken past. Nonetheless, Jesus still pursues. And he's still waiting at the well. But we have to come clean about our past, be truthful with who we are. There's no use in evasive answers or switching the subject. Jesus waits by the well for us, and once we accept him as bridegroom, we rush into town to tell everybody about it. Now, That's what we've learned from last week. This week, I just wanted to real quickly to delve in, if Jesus is the bridegroom, what's the wedding day? Now, we recognize in Revelation, there's going to be the wedding supper of the Lamb. But is there a wedding day here before he gets to heaven, before we get to heaven? Is there something before that moment? And I think there definitely is something more. Um, uh, Let me share with you a verse here. Uh, It's kind of a strange verse, Mark 2, 18 to 20. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Well, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the groom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the groom is taken Now, remember those words now, taken away from them, then they will fast on that day. Now, I think Jesus is here accentuating the marriage metaphor and his role in it. First off, ancient wedding feasts were a time of huge celebration, a week-long celebration, not fasting, not fasting. I think Jesus makes that point here. And they would have thought back, hey, he's got a point. Jacob spends a week celebrating his message to Leah. And then, by the way, another one to celebrate his marriage to Rachel. Samson tells of a secret of a riddle on the seventh day of his wedding feast to the Philistine. And Pharaoh, by the way, this would be an extra biblical account. But there's an extra biblical account of Pharaoh that says anyone who does any work during the wedding week of Joseph and his Egyptian wife dies. So, weddings were for feasting and celebration, not fasting, which is the point Jesus was making in this passage of Mark. Now, in this passage, Jesus is the bridegroom and the disciples are the attendants. Their ministry time together is kind of likened, therefore, to a week long wedding affair. And you gotta imagine, it was incredibly joyous and fun and interesting to go around and heal and touch and teach and amaze people everywhere you went, like a week-long wedding affair indeed. But remember, I asked you to remember those words, taken away. Those were words used, that phraseology is used in the Greek, when a bridegroom was taken away to the bridal chamber to consummate his marriage. Now, when that happened, The attendants would mourn. Now, I think it was probably an official mourning. They're probably thrilled to death that their man here gets to go in with that woman and enjoy a night of consummation and enjoy a marriage together. But they would officially mourn. But get this now. Jesus is taken away to the cross. Same words. By soldiers and guards to the marriage chamber of the cross. Did you hear what we just said? There were many in Christian history that looked at the cross of Jesus Christ and said, that's Jesus' marriage chamber. And one of the most profound New Testament scholars in the world, it's actually the dad and a friend of a son of mine, a guy named Craig Keener. Craig Keener says this, Jesus is the groom of God's people in the coming Messianic banquet. The taking of the bridegroom, of course, is a veiled reference to the impending crucifixion. I just find it fascinating. There's something that happens at the cross, which by the way, when you take communion, you probably ought to take communion thinking in terms of marriage, thinking in terms of the kiss of God upon your life. Now, we're looking at all this. I just want to come around, kind of turn the corner and say, if that kind of motif, if that kind of metaphor is seen throughout scripture, that is, a marriage between God and man, between God and people. If that is so obvious, and I think it's incredibly obvious throughout scripture. Now, I want to start asking questions in my own life. What are barriers to intimacy in my life? And I think it's a great thing for anybody to ask. What are the barriers and what are the antidotes to those barriers to intimacy with God? And I just came up with a couple. I thought they might be interesting for, uh, for us to talk over here today as you listen to this podcast. Number one, I think one of the major barriers to intimacy is simply fear. Fear can't immobilize. Fear can keep us from moving towards a more intimate knowledge, experience, and encounter with Him. Now, Here's an interesting passage. It comes out of Luke 9 and also Mark 9. After healing a man's demon-possessed son, and while everyone was amazed at God's greatness, Jesus pulls his men aside and says, listen, let these words sink deep into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And it's clear they didn't get what he's talking about. That's why Luke records. But they didn't understand his statement, and it was concealed for them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Why would they be afraid to ask him about the same? Maybe because they don't want to know the answer. Y'all, I'm a University of Kansas graduate. I'm an alum of the University of Kansas Jayhawks, right? I was on the uh, track and field team with them. And so I knew a lot of the basketball players back in the day. I uh, graduated, uh, went to seminary, came back, and got my PhD at the University of Kansas and uh the year after i left guess what they go to the national championship game and larry brown a guy named larry brown was our coach now remember semifinal game and those are back in the days where they didn't mind sticking the camera right down in the middle of the team huddle and uh let you hear in what's going on and i remember uh Kansas was down two or four points minute left to go or so they got the camera down in the huddle and Larry Brown is saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. All right, Danny, you're going to take the ball and you're going to give, and they talk strategy and everybody says, all right, all right. And so, you know, at the end of those huddles, everybody puts their hand in the middle and they say something like go Jayhawks or something. And uh, Larry Brown gets done instructing them as to what they're going to do to beat Duke in the semifinal game even though it's close and they're behind. And he explains to them what they're going to do. And he looks up and he sees they're terrified. And Larry Brown said something I'll never forget. In that moment, he said, guys, don't be afraid to win. And the assistant coaches kind of got one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, guys. Don't be afraid to win. Don't be afraid to win. Everybody in. And they said, Kansas Jayhawks. And they went out and they won the game. It's a great reminder, friends. Don't be afraid to be holy. Don't be afraid to ask a good question and be fearful of the answer. Don't live afraid. Now, used to have an old professor named Robert Mulholland. Dr. Mulholland taught New Testament at Asbury Seminary. And uh, Mulholland once in a chapel message said, okay, let's do a little group exercise. I'm going to say a word and you're going to say the opposite. So let's work opposites. And he said up and we all said down. In and we all said out, hot, cold, love, hate. And he said, no, you got it wrong. We thought, what would get wrong? He says, hate is not the opposite of love, at least not in 1 John chapter four. And this is how he read it that day. And he subsequently preached on it. He said, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, we also are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out, not hate. Perfect love drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So, what's a barrier to intimacy with Jesus? I believe one of the first things you need to talk about is simply fear. We do not have to fear him. We can have a perfect love for him. Certainly he has a perfect love for us. If we're going to be intimate with him, we've got to take that fear before God and ask him to deal with it for us so that we can come with courage, with boldness, with love to almighty God, to the father, the son, and the spirit. One barrier to intimacy would be fear. Next one. This kind of going to be kind of obvious, but I think we all need to work on it. It's simply sin and sin. We're going to call a disobedience to a known law or a known teaching of God. And there's a lot of areas you go to here. Let me just say, I've listed six things here. You could go for a lot longer than six, but I think in our culture, which is a very prosperous culture, I think money is a huge cause of sin in our life. And the major reason is we don't think our money is God's money. We think our money is our money. Now we might tie to him. In fact, the best of us will tie to him. In fact, The truth is, most people listening to this podcast right now probably don't give 10% to the church. Those of you who do, that's good, but that's not enough. God wants 100% of your money. Now, 10% or more ought to go to what your local church is doing in that church and beyond that church into the community and to the nations of the world. I think 10% is a great thing to give of your monthly income to the church, your local church of Jesus Christ. But having said that, What about the other 90%? It's not yours. It belongs to God. So what you do, how you spend it, where you spend it, how much of you spend that that, that you're going to spend of it, on and on. Money is a huge thing. What you've got to finally say is, Jesus, this is your money, and I'm not going to spend it the way I want to spend it. I'm going to spend it the way you want it spent, if indeed you want it spent at all. I think one of the huge things in our life where there is disobedience to a clear teaching of God is at the point of money. Next, sexuality. Sex outside of marriage. Utilizing sex sex in unnatural ways. And boy, do, we're off to the races with that in American culture. But let's just take that sex outside of marriage thing. You know, I, I love to go into the prison and preach the gospel. But I, I got to tell you, as long as I'm there, I'm just not going to preach an easy gospel. I'm going to preach the gospel that sometimes is very hard because good news sometimes is very hard because good news sometimes means you got to stop doing the bad news so that you can do the good news, live the good news, hear the good news, activate the good news. So uh, I love to go in there and just talk about, Hey, you know, we got to be obedient to Christ at every point of our lives, including sexuality. And most of those guys don't want to hear that, but uh, to make it clear to them, that the sexual immoral have no place in the kingdom of God, is that, that's news to most of them. And to simply and readily and boldly proclaim sexual purity is huge. In almost every situation in America today, least of all prison. Next, power in relationships. Listen, power is simply... As far as the sinful use of power, it's the ungodly use of power towards unholy ends. And there's all kinds of relationships where we uh, manipulate them. We try to use people. Uh, It might get brutal where we use them lustfully. We might use them sexually. We might use them for the ends of the advancement of our career. But we need to repent. So the first thing we're talking about here today as far as disobedience to a lone law of God, alone teaching of God is simply money, sex, power, and then this addiction. Hey, listen, I think almost all of us are addicted to something. Now we have celebrate recovery programs. I've been around folks, my whole ministry career that have been in 12 step programs. And of course I minister out at a prison on a regular basis. And guess what? Most of us are addicted to something. I won't admit it. I mean, I would say, listen, man, freedom, I'm not addicted to crack cocaine. I'm not addicted to sex. I'm not addicted to heroin. I'm not addicted to alcohol. My life's pretty good. And truth is, I'm grateful I'm not addicted to any of those things. I got to go on and say, okay, are there other addictions? I think anybody ought to be able to say, am I addicted to the screen? Like the iPhone screen, the internet screen, the gaming screen. Now, the truth is, we all have addictions of some kind. And the addiction to the screen is just as bad as any other addictions we're talking about. We've got to be careful. Some of us are addicted to politics, some of us are addicted to news from Israel. We're, just, we're, we're addicted to stuff. And we've got to say, listen, I want to be enamored with the things. Jesus was enamored with. I want to be enamored with the things that proper and balanced discipleship is enamored with and to nothing else. I think technology and frivolity, (laughs) there's, I think we all have, not all of us. I think there are a lot of us that have a spiritual ADD, attention deficit disorder, and we can't keep honed in on Jesus. We are continually distracted by other things. And we live the distracted life. And I think technology and frivolity really feeds into that. I'll just say the last thing here is, as far as sin is concerned, wrongful attitudes. Pride, anger, lust, irritation, and continued irritation. I think a lot of us have wrongful attitudes. And I think Jesus, at these six points, and many others beside, want to redeem us. Want to set us free. And we cannot be intimate with God if money is in the way. You can't be intimate with God if you are having sex outside of marriage. You cannot be addicted to God if you're addicted to something other than God. Remember, we talked about already in this this, uh, intimacy with God series how that is called harlotry and prostitution in Scripture. We cannot have an intimate relationship with God if we are addicted to technology and on it goes. So as far as barriers to intimacy, the first thing is fear. The second thing is sin. Third thing is, boy, this is big woundedness. I don't know how many of you read David Seaman's book healing for damaged emotions. I highly recommend it. I'm reading it right now. He says, listen, this isn't sin. This is what you would call infirmities. There are a realm of problems that need a special kind of prayer, a work that is deeper than say, hey, let's just wipe over the wand and assume everything goes away when you get saved. There's a deeper level of healing by the spirit that needs to take place in many of us. Think in terms of a tree. A tree has protective bark, but if you get rid of that bark and you cut into that tree a little bit, pretty soon you have the recorded rings of your lives. And frequently those rings are scars of ancient, painful hurts. They're tragic stains that muddy all of our life. For instance, while it might not be sin, it's definitely standing between us and intimacy with God. A deep sense of unworthiness. A perfectionist complex. Super sensitivity about all perceived wrongs against you. Fears sexual trauma, enduring guilt, shame. And there is an antidote that is the beginning of healing for damaged emotions. And so one of the things that David Stevens talks about in his book are these six things. And the rest of the book comes after his opening up these initial six things. You need to read the book, but he says, listen up. If you're going to take care of this barrier, this barrier that we call woundedness, you need to do these six things. Number one, face your problems squarely. With ruthless moral honesty and with God's grace, confront that awful hidden childhood memory, however deep the feelings within you. Acknowledge it to yourself and acknowledge it to another human being. Get somebody in this corrective pilgrimage with you. Acknowledge here your problem. Acknowledge with moral honesty that awful hidden childhood memory and let's get to work. Number two, accept your responsibility in the matter. Yeah, something really bad might have happened the first time. You were molested. Uh, Someone said a damaging thing to you. Your, your, Your mom, your dad hit you. It might've got a bad situation rolling, but what about the second or the third time? Whose fault was it then? In other words, you're finally responsible for your actions and you will never receive healing for your damaged emotions until you stop blaming everyone else and accept responsibility. Third thing, ask yourself, do I really want to be healed? (laughs) Huh? This is what Jesus asked a sick man who lay ill for 38 years in John five. Do you really want to be healed or do you just want to talk about your problem and get sympathy from others or, or just keep using your problem as a crutch? Now that might be, just seem like an absurd question. Do you want to be healed? But think about it. If you've been there for 38 years, 40 years, you, you, have been there, same place, Same imprint on the ground from your little buttocks hitting the clay the same same way. Are you sure you're going to want to get up from that and go to work? Because once you get up, your whole life changes. You're going to have to work for a living. You're going to have a whole new set of problems after you heal. Are you sure you want to be healed? And a lot of us don't. Not really. We'd rather whine and moan and groan about the problem. But if you say, yes, indeed, 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 I want to be healed, and I'm going to Jesus boldly to say, let me, by your grace, allow me to do the good, hard work necessary for the healing. Number four, forgive everyone who's involved in your problem. Ooh, that's hard. The reason some people have never been able to forgive, however, is that if they forgive, the last rug would be pulled out from under them and they would have no one else to blame. Number five, forgive yourself. Through an inscrutable mystery, divine omniscience has somehow forgiven and forgotten your sins. So you can forgive yourself, and you can forget, or at least victoriously move beyond it. You got to forgive yourself. And then finally this ask the Holy Spirit to show you and your real problem. What is my real problem? How is it that I really need to pray for this thing, particularly pray for this thing? The Holy Spirit knows where to tinker. He knows what we have to do, and he knows what we have to pray for. We often do not receive because we ask for the wrong thing. So read, seek counsel, ask the Holy Spirit to show you exactly what you need to know about yourself and then to guide you in your prayers for your healing. Now there's a whole lot more to the book than that, but again, highly recommended healing for damaged emotions by a guy named David Siemens now deceased, but extraordinary book over a million copies of this thing sold. And I think it will have a lot of practical techniques that are talked about that will help you heal from this barrier to intimacy with God. And that is your woundedness. Number four. I think number four is huge. It's sloth. Just a reluctance to work or make an effort at something. Listen, if you are going to be intimate with somebody, you've got to work at it. And that includes your intimacy with God. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise. Philippians 2.12 says this, So, then, and Paul writes to the house church of Philippi, he says, so then my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, intimate relationships take work. It doesn't matter if it's your wife with your children. It doesn't matter if it's a friend. Intimate relationships take work. The working God, and God is a working God. The working God is a God who can give you the grace to reflect him in his working image so that at least one of the things you can work on is your intimacy with him, and it will absolutely put you on a wonderful joyful hilarious trajectory if you deal with your sloth and your laziness all right next barrier to intimacy with god would simply be lack of experience together i think intimates spend time doing things together lots of things enjoyable things fun things but things together now what kind of things are we talking about again We've talked about uh, the Five Q method of discipleship again. Very highly recommended. The Five Q method of discipleship: five questions that will change your life. Go to Amazon.com, the Five Q method of discipleship, and check it out. Written by Matt Friedman. That would be me. But in there, we have a card that we highly recommend you make. They're in the back. You can uh, actually make copies of it and cut them up, and you can have instant cards. But uh, they're what we call the means of grace. Two means, two pathways of grace. Number one, a works of piety. If you want intimacy with God, you need to pray daily to him, converse with him daily. I think you ought to have a private life, a private prayer life, a family prayer life, and others' prayer life. Lots of praying, lots of praying to God. I think you need to look for him in his word. You need to hear the word, read the word, meditate upon the word. I think you need to go to church regularly and be in a small group regularly. Worship attendance and discipleship groups are huge for your establishing a more intimate relationship with the Lord. Here's one. One of the basic works of piety for thousands of years have been fasting. As bodily health allows, the early church and the early Methodists fasted twice a week on Wednesdays and Fridays. It's a great thing to do, y'all. Skip a meal, skip two meals on Wednesdays and Fridays and say, listen, I want to especially seek God with a greater intensity on these days, as I say no to food, yes to self- denial and most of all yes to him, and then finally communion as regularly as the local church serves it, but again, communion ought to help us remember <laughs> remember how we talked about uh the cross that what is crucifixion at the end of the day we recognize that the crucifixion is huge. It is basically the taking away of the bridegroom to not just impending crucifixion, but to the marriage bed. And the marriage bed of Jesus is his cross, the works of piety. So we do these with God and guess what? We grow in it. How can you not grow in intimacy with him doing those things? Well, there's a way. You also have to do works of mercy, Wesley said, listen, I'm going to tell you what John Wesley said. Works of mercy, things like feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, entertaining the stranger, uh, making sure you're visiting those in prison or sick or or variously afflicted. Uh, You want to get out and share the gospel, instruct the ignorant, awaken the sinner. All these are works of mercy that God wants us to do as means of grace so that we can be more intimate with God. Now, these means are to be exercised with faith. These means are to be exercised with love. Without these, they can take the form of legalism or worse. But if we do them with faith, if we do them with love, oh my goodness, we grow in our knowledge. Remember, we grow in our experience and in our encounter, in our yada with the Lord. Now this last thing, almost have to have a something I can show you this with. It's hard to do it as I just instruct you in it, but... There is something that we've always called the Ordo Salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. And basically what we're saying is you need to know where you are and where you need to go. If you don't know where you are, that's a barrier to intimacy. If you don't know where you need to go, that's a barrier to intimacy. So the Ordo Salutis is basically a stair step. So just think in terms right now of a stair step or maybe even a ladder. But we're going up the ladder, going up the stair step. The first step is prevenient grace. Has nothing to do with you. God is wooing you. He is pursuing you. Then there's justifying grace. That is the grace to get ready to be all that God wants me to be. So this whole thing starts with grace. Doesn't start with you. Start with God. And by working ahead and giving you justifying grace, which is the grace of salvation, you are finally justified. So the first three steps are grace, grace, and then you are saved. After that, the next step, so we're three steps up. Fourth step is this, growth in salvation. You have to grow. Uh, Next step is sanctifying grace. He sends grace into your life to woo you to the next step. And that is, it can be known by any number of terminologies. My holiness world likes to use the words entire sanctification, but your world might prefer fullness of the spirit. Another group of people might say perfect love, but what it is is you come where you've consecrated fully everything to Jesus and he blesses it all and says, now let's really get moving. And after that, there's more growth in that sanctification and eventually heaven. So we've just been through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight, Yes. Eight steps. So let me just say again, prevenient grace, then justifying grace, then your salvation. Then there's growth in salvation. Then there's sanctifying grace. Then there's their entire sanctification. Then there's growth in that sanctification. And then there's heaven. Well, none of us are in heaven yet, but you might be in one of those other seven steps. And you say, basically what I do is I put this in front of people and say, circle where you're at. Are you saved? Yep. Well, now we need to find a way to grow you in your salvation so that God can begin giving you sanctifying grace to bring you to a point of entirety where you wholly consecrate your life and he'll wholly bless it. And then there's growth even after that. Here's the point. Most people don't know where they're at on the ladder. They don't know where they're at. All they know is they're saved. So probably if they just think, hey, I'm saved, that's frequently they're stuck at. They say, I'm saved, and that's all I need. It's not all you need. In fact, many of you listening to this podcast right now have known for some time there's more. And you want the more. Do you want the more? Because if you do, there is more. There is an entire sanctification. Now, some people say, I don't know. I think I got everything I needed at salvation. I don't need anything more. Well, yes, you do need something more. And I love the way Dennis Kinlaw puts it. You have to walk with Jesus a while to find out how deep of a sin problem you really had. And I think the great metaphor for this in scriptures are the disciples. They had a three-year relationship with Jesus, and yet they weren't where God wanted them for leadership in the church. That's why they had to have a Pentecost. So you have a relationship with Jesus, but that's not enough. He wants to fill you with his spirit and then grow in that relationship And bring others to know that relationship. So yes, I think there are two great distinct works in a person's life. The first great work is salvation. The next great work is the fullness of the spirit or entire sanctification or perfect love. And yes, I think Jesus wants you to take both of those things seriously and the important growth in between those things. Do you know where you're at on the ladder? Do you know where you're at on the staircase? Do you know what you need to do to get to the next level? Because we always, always, always ought to be climbing up the ladder, always be stepping up the staircase. If we're not stepping up, we're probably not staying where we're at. We're probably beginning to walk backwards down the stairs. Hmm. Those are barriers, I think, to intimacy, fear, sin, woundedness sloth, lack of experience with the Lord, lack of encounter with God. And then finally, not knowing where you're at, not knowing where you need to go. Hey, there are antidotes to every one of those that are quite self-evident. Hey, the Lord wants you to be intimate with him. He wants a growing intimacy with you. Take that seriously. And folks, one of the great ways to take it seriously is 5Q discipleship. Get that book, the 5Q discipleship method of discipleship and get those cards going. On one side of the card are going to be how to have a great discipleship group meeting. On the other side of the card are the works of piety and the works of mercy. Incorporate those three things into your life, and my goodness gracious, do that with faith, do it with love, and watch your life explode. All right, friends, it's a wrap. Been an honor to have you listen to the Life Changing Discipleship program and podcast with Matt Friedelman. Check out our Facebook page, Life Changing Discipleship. Check out the books at Amazon.com. And always, always tell others about our podcast. Remember now, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you, and I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life Changing Discipleship today. So, love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon.